Dear congregation, many events affect the world. Recessions, pandemics, natural disasters, terrorism, events that have implications even for today. And of course, as Christians, we are not immune from these events because we are living in this world. And these events affect us greatly because they come unexpectedly. We do not know how to react to the sudden changes that these events bring. Or how we wish we would know what happens today, tomorrow, the coming week, the coming month. How we wish we know all these things that will happen so that we can plan our lives around all these events. But thankfully, the most important event for us believers is an event that we know is coming. It is not unexpected. It is a sure event that shows our sure hope. It's a future event that should shape our lives right now. And of course, the most important event for all of us that's coming is the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, how does hearing about that event make you feel right now? Hearing that indeed the Lord will return one day. How does that make you feel? Joyous? Fearful? Anxious? It should, it should give us comfort. Jesus says in John 14 verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. His return is of comfort to believers. It is our hope. But that raises the question, how shall we live in this time of waiting? How should we wait for Christ's return? Well, I want us to see what Paul does in our passage here. What does he say? And you would see that he uses this time of waiting for Christ to return. He uses this time to exhort us on how we should live. And so this evening, I present to you this sermon titled, Knowing the Time, Put on Jesus. Three simple points. First, knowing the time. Second, laying aside the deeds of darkness. And third, putting on Jesus. So let, me, let us go to the first point. Knowing the time and looking at verse 11 to um, the first half of verse 12. So looking at verse 11, Paul says that we are to know the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. It's a time. Now what is this time? This time is the, the time period awaiting Christ's return. Awaiting Christ's return. And of verse 11. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And we must note that salvation here is not referring to justification, for we are all justified when we believe. What Paul has in mind is the fullness of salvation, the resurrection, the glorification of all believers, the fullness. And that only comes when Christ returns. And Christ's return is nearer as time goes on. As hour goes on, as days goes by, as years come and go, Christ's return is coming nearer. And Paul's point is that the time we live in right now has this 
urgent quality, urgent quality. Because in biblical history, there is no more milestone, there is no more big event that we await other than the return of Jesus. Both Paul, 2,000 years ago, and us right now, 2,000 years later, we are living in that end part of salvation history. There's no more big event to await other than the return of Christ. And so that's why often in the New Testament, there is this mention of the last days. The last days. We are living in the last days. So Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, God has in these last days spoken to us in His Son. Now when we talk about time here in verse 11, it's not talking about when Christ will come exactly, calculating, trying to guess which year he'll come back. The word for time here is not chronos. It's not chronos referring to chronology, days or hours. The word here is kairos, which refers to the season. We are more concerned about the character of the time we live in. And the character of the time we live in is one of urgency. Why is it urgent? Because Christ is returning. We know that. And the return of Christ must inform how we are to live day by day as we await his return. Now, to help us better understand this time that Paul is speaking about, let me put it this way. Let me give you an illustration. We believers, we are living at 4 a.m. in the morning. 4 a.m. in the morning. Now, what do I mean? I want us to look at the, the, the night and day imagery that Paul uses here. Verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Now, Paul's point is that Jesus is going to come back in the morning. The day, the day is at hand. It is coming. He is coming. So the time we live in now is, for sake of illustration, is before sunrise. And that would be around 4 a.m. Let's put it that way. 4 a.m. When darkness is going away, the darkness of the night is going away, and the light of the day is coming. The change. So that is where we are in history. 4 a.m. Where we know that Jesus is coming back in the morning. And Paul here wants to make, wants to make us be aware, to be sure that we must wake up from the night for the day is coming. But that raises the question, what is the night referring to here? Is the night something that is bad? That is why we need to wake up from it. Well, Paul in verse 12 speaks about the deeds of darkness. So indeed, in Paul's mind here, the night, the darkness is something negative. The night refers to the age that we live in. This sinful world that will pass away. What Pastor Chris hinted in Psalm 11, where the foundations are being attacked, where there's clear wickedness in society, the age that we live in, in Paul's time and in our day as well. So the, the night is not just a time before Jesus returns, but it is an evil night, the evil age. And believers, we experience this night we experience this evil age because we live in this world. But the hope, indeed the hope is that this world, this night will pass away soon. 
And so right now, we are looking forward to that day. But the danger is, the danger is that we can love the night. We can love this world. We can love this evil age. We can love sin. And that's why Paul calls us to wake up from the night. And so what would it mean to ignore the call to wake up? What would it mean to continue sleeping through the night, according to these verses? Well, it would be to just live in this evil age with no carefulness, with no watchfulness, no navigation around the things that tempt us in the world, living as if this world is all that we have, indifferent to Christ's coming. doesn't really matter a spiritual sleepiness even though you go to church every Sunday. And so that's why Paul calls us to wake up. A simple command. Right? So we are living in this special time between night and day. Right? Again, 4 a.m. is the overlap between night and day. Let me ask you again. It's 4 a.m. night time. Not really, right? It's 4 a.m. daytime. Not really. It's, it's the overlap between night and day. So likewise, we live in the overlap, this 4 a.m., between the evil world that we live in right now and also the glorious world, reality to come at Christ's coming. Heaven to come. There is this tension. Tension. Right now, we both experience this evil world, but yet we also experience already some of the new reality in Christ and overlap to help us understand this further again question are we new creations in Christ oh yes the, the Bible says so clearly but are we sinless already well no have we experienced the resurrection fully no so that's what we call the already and not yet. We already experience some of that glorious future reality in Christ, being united with Him. But not all of it. That only comes at Christ's return, the bodily resurrection. So here we are, justified in Christ, having that union with Christ with his, by His Spirit. Yet here we are living in this evil age. There is this overlap. So Paul's point here, we are at 4 a.m., night and day overlapping. Crucial question that Paul wants to pose to all of us. Should we live as in the night or as in the day? Do we live like the world in its darkness, in its ignorance? Or do we live in light of Christ's coming? Of course, we live in the day, verse 13. And so that means we wake up up we wake up now just to give an illustration to summarize all of this imagine a house at night a house a large house and there were people partying in the basement a party of sinful desires that's the first group first group then there was a second group who was sleeping very soundly upstairs sleeping very soundly it's the second group now, both of these groups have one thing in common. They don't mind if the night goes on and on. 
partying forever, sleeping forever. Let the night go on and on. It doesn't matter. We enjoy it. Two groups, one partying, one sleeping. But there was a third group who knows that when morning comes, the king will come to visit. And so they are getting ready at 4 a.m. They are wide awake. They dress themselves in a way. They dress themselves in a way that the king will be pleased. They know to do all these things, to get ready, because they know the day is coming and the king is coming. So even though it's very early in the morning, it doesn't matter to them because they are focused on the day at hand, the return of the king. And so all their actions at 4 a.m. right now is because of the coming day. Now, which group do you belong to, dear believer? The command to wake up here is not calling for a one-time action, but it's calling you to be in a constant state of being awake and watchful, knowing the day is at hand. Knowing that the king is coming and knowing the evil of the present night that, that you live in. And there are times that we can be described as being half asleep. No, we know what God is calling us to do. We know that Christ will return, but we are half asleep. Well, God says, wake up. It's foolishness to believe that this world is all that we have. And the night goes on and on, day by day. Why is this the man that considers that indeed this, this world shall pass and lives out the truth? You have the knowledge and you live it out. That is wisdom. That's godliness. Now, children, remember Jonah. He ignored God's call and mission and he ran away. And then there was a storm in the sea and everyone, including the unbelievers, were awake in the storm. Who was asleep? It was Jonah. Jonah was asleep. The only believer on the boat, he was asleep. And so the unbelievers had to wake Jonah up to do something. So let us be awake to what God calls us to do. What God calls us to do. And remember, when someone calls you to wake up, it is for your own good. Now, this passage is a warning passage, but can you see the grace here? It's a gracious passage also, calling those who are asleep to wake up, be watchful. And you may have this in your mind already. Jesus had the similar warning in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Be watchful, be prepared. There is still time to repent and to wake up. And Jesus Christ, the King, is worth waking up and preparing for. And He calls you to. He calls you to. And with that, we come to the actions that Paul calls us to in our next point. Verse 12, the end of verse 12 to 13. Lay aside the deeds of darkness, our second point. In verse 12, Paul uses a new imagery that follows. Verse 11 was waking up or sleep. In verse 12, he uses the image of changing clothes. Now, when we wake up, we either continue wearing our night clothes or we change to our day clothes. And so Paul says that the day is coming, so we must be dressed for the day. No longer in night clothes. No longer identity, identifying ourselves with the night. So verse 12, lay aside. 
lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so a, li- a list of dark- uh, deeds of darkness can be found in verse 13. And Paul does not go into specifics. This is intended to be general, drunkenness, sexual sins, sensuality. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but we can see that all these are sins of desire, a lack of self-control, having an idol of myself, doing whatever I feel like doing without restraint. Here, the sinner's goal is pleasure above all things, even above God. My pleasure comes first, and that's why all these sins follow. Now, all these are sins of the night, of darkness that believers of the daylight should not partake in. What should believers do? Verse 13, behave properly. Walk properly before God and before men. Doing nothing that causes shame. And so deeds of darkness can also speak of things that people desire to keep secret. No one knows except you. Try to keep it in the dark. So yes, you may not be drunk outside, but that does not mean that you are immune to these deeds of darkness. So in this day and age, we have more deeds of darkness than ever before. So many secret sins. Think of pornography. Sins of darkness. Paul says, let us lay aside. Cast it off. No part of you at all. What Paul is telling us is to it's calling us to live. We know that God sees everything, right? That is a fundamental basic truth, that God knows everything, God sees everything. And so we must live really knowing that God sees everything. Psalm 139 verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, O God. Now, can you pray that, dear believer? Or are there secret sins that you're hiding, that are eating at your conscience right now? And God says, lay it aside, repent. Get it off you. And so Paul is clear. Paul is upfront with the sins that believers can engage in. Paul knows we all can fall into these sins, living as though the night goes on forever, as though the war is all that we have putting aside that Jesus is coming back, forgetting that Christ is coming back. So, so the danger is a live for the moment attitude. Pursue your desire while you still have time to enjoy this world. A great temptation for all of us. You know, sin is like the blanket that we enjoy in our Michigan winter. It makes us sleepy. We enjoy our blanket in the morning. The blanket makes us want to keep on sleeping. It takes a lot to throw out the comfortable blanket in winter. But sin is like that. Just covers us, makes us drowsy and sleepy, not aware of the things of God. Paul says, cast it off. Lay it aside. Wake up. Throw off that blanket of sin. In verse 13, Paul is not just focusing on obvious sins, but there are more subtle sins such as jealousy and strife. In the next chapter, Romans 14, Paul is going to speak, Paul is going to speak about church quarrels where food, food can be something that believers in church can 
fight over. So yes, you may not be sinning with the wall outside, but you can step into the church and be sinning against your brother. In jealousy, in envy, subtle sins. And speaking about jealousy, you know, jealousy for believers is illogical. It does not make sense. First, what, what need is there for a Christian to be jealous over the temporal things that an unbeliever has? Does the Christian not know that you are far richer in Christ? What need is there to be jealous over the things that an unbeliever has? Second, how can a Christian be jealous of another Christian when both have the same heavenly Father who gives according to his riches, grace, and wisdom? And so do not think that jealousy and strife are not as bad as the other sins listed here. All the sins here, from sexual sins to jealousy, are all deeds of darkness. They are, they are sins that imitate the world more than Jesus. It's so easy to fall into these sins. And all these sins show that I only care about self-satisfaction. No one can stand in my way. That's why all these sins come. Now, we are all prone to have that secret dark area in our lives, a place in our hearts that we can let things like anger and jealousy grow and grow. That secret area, the darkness in us. And we foolishly think that God does not care about it. For all our theological knowledge, sometimes we forget or we consciously put aside the fact that God knows everything about us. But He knows. So let us repent of this foolishness, sin, these deeds of darkness that God knows. Repent. Again, all these things in verse 13 if I can summarize all these sins, it's an idol of myself where I put myself first, my desires first. That's why all these sins come. Putting ourselves first. And these are also sins of ignorance. Ignoring the clear commands of God. I'll call to worship in Titus 2, verse 12 to 13. Let me read again. Deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Deny sin, live righteously, looking for the coming of Christ. That is the Christian life. So Jesus is the focus, both in that future event and also his person, who he is. Only with a focus on Jesus can we cast off and lay aside these deeds of darkness and live in the light that we're called to. And so that comes, that brings us to our last point, put on Jesus. So not only do we lay aside the deeds of darkness, there is a putting on, here in verse 12, the armor of light. Now Paul again shifts to a soldier imagery. There's a change of imagery here. He now, he now uses the soldier imagery to make his point. And what does that tell us? Soldier, armor of light. Why is it an armor here? 
Well, because there is a spiritual battle. Armor needed. No sin is active to pursue you, so we must be active in putting on our armor or defense. And you may remember that Paul speaks a lot about the armor of God in Ephesians 6 verse 13, where he says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, obviously, that is important for our passage here this evening. But the reference of armor may be more towards 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8, where Paul says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, faith, hope, love in Christ. All things in Christ. And so Paul in verse 14, he concludes with the final imagery. Put on Jesus Christ. Nothing less, nothing less. Put on Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ himself we put on. Now, putting on is something simple to understand. Even children know what it means to put on something. But what does it mean to put on Jesus? Where do we begin? With God's help, let me offer some thoughts. What does putting on Jesus mean? First of all, we have to remember that we are all covered in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. We are all covered in the righteousness of Christ. But our passage here is not talking so much about justification. It has more to do with sanctification, about the theme of union with Christ. By faith, we receive Christ and we are united with Him by the Spirit. And so to put on Christ here is to live out this reality of being united with Christ that all believers have. To live out this identity. Paul puts it simply in Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ. Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ has given us this new life in Him that we are to live out our identity. And so in Christ, when we are faced with the tempting beauty of the deeds of darkness, sin, that, 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 that thick beauty of sin, we're tempted by it, we have the beauty of Christ to look at. Christ has come to make all things new. The Savior who has redeemed sinners like us and given us eternal life and brought us into fellowship with God. He has made us citizens of His kingdom. He has brought us into God's family. And he has remade us, remade us to be new creations in Him, to be conformed to His image. And so in Christ, we pursue the beauty of the Christian life by faith, knowing and living out Jesus Christ. We have someone to run to in light of the temptations that we face. The Savior who has bought us with His blood. 
Like what our catechism, not see one says, body and soul, life and death, not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If you confess that Christ is your comfort, let him be your refuge in everything. And so, you who love Christ, what you profess, if you profess that you love Christ, you love what he loves. You hate what he hates. Let the thought of Christ guide your affections and your desires. Now, we put on many identities in this life. We are parents, we are children, we are students, we are workers, we are pastors, we are elders, we are husbands, we are wives. Some of you may be new parents this year. Many identities in this life that we have, but put on Christ first and foremost with all things. Let Christ be the garment beneath the other garments that we put on, the, the foremost identity that we hold on to. And He is most worthy to be imitated in what He does. There is no flaw in Him. Now, there are many great men in the Bible, but all of them have their own flaws. But Christ is full perfection. Read about Him in the Gospels. Be astounded in how godly He lived in this evil world. Christ lived in this evil world as well. And he knows our temptations. Imitate him. Imitate him. And speaking about putting on Jesus, remember, it is a privilege. As servants, we are called to put on our master. What a privilege. And so, there is a dignity as we put on Christ. There is a dignity about us. Not that we have that of ourselves, but as we put on Christ, as we are united with Him, there is a dignity being united to the King. So with this dignity, how can we desire to engage in the filth of sin? Talk about putting on, there is a desire to put off Jesus. Put off Jesus for moments that, that we want to in, indulge in sin for a moment. But no, dear believer, Paul calls us to wake up, no more sleeping, no more dreaming about sin, no more clothing of darkness, put on Jesus. So this wake up, this put on language that Paul here uses, is a constant state. Keep doing that, day in and day out, and not to be complacent, not to be complacent. And don't you ever think that this new life in Christ is only lived out in heaven. We live out Christ right now. All our thoughts must be captive to Christ. Everything is owned by Christ, our Master. So do you desire to put on Christ, your identity? Now as believers, we are tempted to carve out our own identity. God does not call us to be the best version of ourselves. God calls us to be like Christ. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. We ought to be like Christ. And this identity of Christ is the power by which we fight sin. Knowing we belong to Christ helps to, us to fight the sexual sin that we see mentioned in verse 13. 
1 Corinthians 6 when he says, You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body and in your spirit. So we must say that Christ has redeemed me, body and soul, by his precious blood. He is my redeemer. So should I freely then give myself over to sin? No. You give yourself to the one who purchased you. Do not give yourself over to the sin that caused the death of Christ in the first place. You can only, you can only serve one master in this life. Serve the one who purchased you with his precious blood. And knowing that we belong to Christ helps us to fight jealousy, envy in verse 13. For we know that we, are, we have everything in Christ. Our contentment is in Christ. Nothing can make me jealous. So in Christ, we have the power to make no provision, no thought for the desires of the flesh. The end of verse 14. You see, sin tries to bait you like a fisherman. A bait that is enticing, but it's dangerous. Behind the bait lies a hook that kills. And so sin wants to negotiate with you. Sin wants to say, no, you're forgiven of all your sins. So sin is really not that dangerous, right? You're forgiven of all your sins. How can sin harm you? You know, sometimes you have this whispers in your ear. It says, the Bible says that David also sinned. And he was forgiven in Psalm 51. Sin is not that dangerous, right? You know, all these voices in your head. Sometimes we are even tempted to think, Jesus, there's no way that Jesus is going to return today. So one day of sin does not really matter in the grand scheme of things. Sometimes we are tempted to think, God has not given me the life that I desire, the life that I deserve. So why not I enjoy some sin to make my life easier? All these false lies that we Maybe tempted to believe. Paul says, make no provision. No space for this kind of thoughts that your flesh induces. Everything must be in the interest of Christ. Jesus Christ owns a believer. No negotiation with sin. No allowance. Put on Jesus, our Lord, whom we are united to right now and we shall forever be united with. I wish to conclude with a few applications. First, again, to speak, to, to speak about sin. Again, sin is illogical for a believer. We are partakers of the new creation, the new reality. So why do we want to engage in the filth of the world, in the sin? Engage in the sins of the world, the world that will perish one day. Now remember Jacob gave Joseph that wonderful coat of many colors. And the brothers tore off that coat and threw Joseph into the pit. Now believers, when we sin, it's like we put off Jesus and we jump into the pit of sin ourselves. That is illogical. It does not make sense. Jacob loved Joseph and gave him the coat. God loved you and gave you Jesus Christ to put on. Put on Jesus, put off sin. Second, 
Let's remember that Paul speaks to the church here. The church in Rome. Let us cast off. Let us lay aside. Let us put on. Let us behave. Let us walk. There is this corporate element in this passage. We all await the return of Christ as a church. We are the bride of Christ. It's a corporate group. And we are all getting dressed for his return. We are all being prepared together as pilgrims waiting his return. We're called to walk with one another. Called to wake one another up. And in corporate worship, corporate worship is where God uses the means of grace, the preaching of the word, of singing to wake each other up from our slumber. To have each one of us focus. Indeed, I know whom I have believed and I'm waiting his return. So let, let this passage inform you of how you are to view corporate worship. Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, waiting for the return of Christ. The songs we sing, the word we preach, it's all for the sake of awaiting the return of Christ. And as we await in, um, and as Christ tarries in his coming, we pay attention to ourselves, how we walk, how we worship him, not to be complacent. We have to also stir each other up to put on Jesus. Even church discipline serves that purpose. Church discipline is to discipline the believer so that he may be restored by God's grace, that he may, be, he may stand the return of Christ Jesus. The whole corporate life of the church aims for this day when Christ returns. And third, we all, to some degree, we suffer from sleepiness to Christ's return. We are, we are all confess we are not awake as we should be. Now let's think for ourselves, what causes it? What makes me more what makes me sleepy to Christ's return? What makes me indifferent to Christ's return? Why am I not excited for the return of Christ? It may simply be busyness, where in this season of life we are more involved in the world. Our jobs, a new job perhaps, needs more from us in this year. And maybe that flows to how often our time is spent in entertainment time now let us be aware and awake to use everything wisely for the sake of the kingdom our resources and indeed this flows to the simple means of grace reading your bible more and more and praying more as simple as that we need to sit in front of our bibles and in prayer alone with god to remind ourselves to remind ourselves of the reality that we live in every day. And fourth, spiritual warfare is tiring. What we spoke about, you may feel tired. You know, talking about the armor of light, fighting sin, it is tiring. But we must fight the good fight of faith. We wear our armor now, The Paul speaks so often about. We wear our armor now. But there will be a time when we lay down our armor. No more spiritual warfare when Christ returns. And that's a wonderful day to look forward to. But nevertheless, we fight right now. But we fight knowing that Jesus is with us. 
knowing that we belong to Jesus and not to this perishing world. And it's through this fighting, this struggle with sin, we know Christ in a way more and more, knowing that His grace is sufficient for us and that He is our strength, our great high priest. And for those who have not believed in this Jesus, now today we spoke about Christ's second coming, where He will return to judge. And the only way to stand firm in that day of judgment when He returns is to look at His first coming where He came, died and was raised again. Look and believe. Only by believing in this Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that He brings can you stand before this Jesus on judgment day. Come to this Jesus when there is still time. In conclusion, brethren, now, when it comes to the return of Christ, there are many theories, many ideas about when and how He will return. We can study that. We can study that. But the Bible is clear about one thing about the return of Christ. Putting aside talking about how and when He shall return, one thing is clear in the New Testament about the return of Christ is that Christ's return must inform us how we are to live. That's the burden of Christ speaking about his return in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. That's the burden of Paul right here in our passage. Return of Christ must inform how we are to live right now. Eschatology must inform ethics, how you are to live. Now, the world out there wants to ignore Christ's first and second coming. But dear believer, dear church, we can at times ignore the reality of Christ's second coming for our lives. Let it not be so among us. May God help us to press home this reality in our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this precious word you have given us. A gracious warning a word that we pray your spirit works in us to wake us up, to stir us into action, to be aware indeed we are united body and soul to Christ Jesus and we are living a time awaiting the return of our precious Savior. By your spirit, only by your spirit, we pray you might give us strength to lay aside our sins, to put on Jesus, our identity, our Savior. To put on Jesus is a weighty command, we, we plead our weakness in this, help us, O Lord. And may you also use this word to comfort believers, uh, to know that indeed we belong not to this world, but to our Savior. Be merciful and gracious to us, we pray. Help us to put on Jesus. Help us to look upon Him and pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's now arise to sing our psalm of adoration. O God, my faithful God, Psalter Hymn now, 523.
unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.